Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask that you guide and lead us as we look at this last chapter in Exodus and bring out what you'd have us to learn and, and, and see from this. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen. Exodus chapter 40. As I was studying this, I, I, see, I found that this breaks down into four distinct sections. So we're going to be taking it in four sections. And maybe we'll get to the end of it today. I don't know. But sections 1 through 12 uh, through 11 show us how to come to God, how to come to God. Verses 12 through 15 is how God makes us holy. 16 through 33 is going to show us how serving God will bring others to God. And 34 to 38 will show the glory of God in his leading. So we're going to, we're going to look at this in, in four sections. Verse 1. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month shall you bring the tabernacle, set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation, and you shall put therein the ark of the testimony, and the cover of the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and set in order the things that are to be set in order upon it, and you shall bring the candlestick and the light of the lamps thereof, and you shall set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony, and Put the hanging of the door to the tabernacle, and you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation, and you shall set the laver be between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and you shall put water therein, and you shall set up the court around about it, and hang up the hangings at the court gate, and you shall take the anointing oil, anoint the tabernacle and all that is in therein, and you shall hallow it, and all the vessels thereof, and it shall be holy." You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all his vessels and sanctify the altar and it shall be an altar most holy. And you shall anoint the laver in his foot and sanctify it. So we look at this and if you look at this, you recognize that this is a list of the items inside the tabernacle. And we mentioned way back when we first started this, how the tabernacle listed in Exodus starts from the inside and works its way out. And we're going to look at that in just a moment as to why that is. And, but let's set the timing. This is, we're coming to the end of the book of Exodus, and, and it says, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle before the tent of the congregation. So how long have they been away from Egypt? Does anybody remember? Eleven months. Right now they're right at 11 months, going in, getting ready to go into the 12th month. Because in Exodus 12, verse 2, it said when they set up the Passover that that month became the first month of the year. So they're getting ready to go into the new first, first, first month. So technically, it's, they're sitting at 12 months, getting ready to enter into the new year. So it's been 12 months that they've been outside of Egypt. And you are right that it's 11 months because they spend about a month to get to Sinai. So they've been in Sinai pretty close to 11 months getting all these rules. when they changed their year, the beginning of their year? Yes. Yep. Well, actually, at, pass, at the first Passover. Yeah, their, their fourth month became their first month. And, and even to this day, the Jews have two calendars. They have a civil calendar and a religious calendar. The religious calendar starts on... It starts at Passover. The civil calendar still starts uh, four months earlier. So 
uh, which makes it confusing sometimes when you when you're when you start talking about what they do and how they do it uh, because you've got to know that there's two calendars to deal with all right so we look at this and we're seeing the tabernacle set up now I'm going to actually look at the tabernacle from the opposite way the way that we as humans see the tabernacle the first thing that you come to when you enter into the into the into the court is what does anybody remember? It's going to be the last thing we talked about. The burnt offering. The brass, the brass altar, the offerings. The brass offering, the offering of sacrifice that brings forgiveness of sin, represents Jesus where he brings us into his family. Okay? God says, I want people to have intimate fellowship with me, and he works his way out. How do I accomplish that? We're going to look at it as we come in. We start with the sacrifice, the offering, and then that brings forgiveness. And Jesus is the sacrifice. And we're going to, as we get into Leviticus next, we're going to see how Jesus is all the offerings that, that they practice. So we start with the offering for forgiveness at the altar. We come to the, what's next in, the, in, the, in it after they come out of the, away from the altar? Huh? The brazen lava, laver, the, the water. And the, and the only ones that are going to get in that is really the priests. So, and in, we're told in the New Testament that we are priests for God. We, are, we have been sanctified. We have been made his priest as we minister to the world. What happens in the altar? They wash their hands for what? Purification. Purification and as they're going in to do what? Serve. What was the first one again? The altar, the, the brazen first, altar. The first is the brazen altar. The brazen, oh, brass altar, brazen altar. Oh, yeah. Then the brazen laver. Okay. Now, we think about this brazen altar, the, the, the laver, and I want to bring out a couple of things to look at. The first is going to be Titus, chapter 3. We're going to go into the New Testament for a moment. Starting with verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration, rebirth. What verse is that? Titus 3, 5. 3, 5. Rebirth. Does that bring, it, bring it, any kind of conversation that Jesus had with anybody to mind? They were born again Christians. Born again. His conversation with Nicodemus. Ye must be born again from death into life. That it only comes through Jesus. Nicodemus didn't understand it, even though the scriptures talk about the washing, the cleaning, the, the rebirth of the, of, after the sin. And in here in Titus, he says, according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration. We want to look at Ephesians 5. Verse 26. 526. 526. That he might sanctify and cleanse it, his bride, Jesus' bride, with the washing of the water of the word. The word brings regeneration. The word brings cleansing. So we just want to look at this. When the, when the priest would go in, they washed their hands for service, but the, it was a picture of applying the washing of God to their life. 
Not their whole body, because what did Jesus tell? Does anybody remember what Jesus told Peter when he was washing the disciples' feet? Peter said, not my feet only, but all of me. What did Jesus say? Does anybody remember? He who has been cleansed needs only to have his feet washed, his, his walk. Okay, so as the priests are getting ready to go into the temple, they've already had their baths. You know, they had their baths before they came into service, but their hands would get dirty as they as they made the offerings, their feet would get dirty and they would wash their hands and their feet in the, in the water, the water of regeneration, the word. We wash ourselves by the word. We read the word, the word convicts us, the word brings us to God, the word changes the way we think. This is why I'm such a big fan of having people read the Bible every day. In a, in a scheduled way, not just haphazard, you know, I just flip my Bible open and read whatever pops open is, is not going to get you a real strong cleansing because it is haphazard. By reading the Bible from cover to cover and doing it every year, we get a great knowledge of God and, and we wash ourselves for service. We enter into the Holy of Holies. And there's three items in the holy, in, excuse me, the holy place, not the holy of holies. We enter in, we've got past the brass altar, we've got past the, the laver, and what are the three items in the holy place? Lampstand. The lampstand, the candlestick, and the table. The ta table of incense, the altar of incense. Once we get in, we. we as we look, walk into the temple, we get our, our sins forgiven from the sacrifice. We are washed for service. Then we take the next step closer to God. We enter into the holy place. What's on the holy place? There's the bread of the show, the show bread. Food. And what is our food is for our spirit is the Holy Spirit, is the word of God. The lampstand for light. Again, the word is our light. And the altar of incense, God refers to those as the prayers of the saints. The, the holy place is where we enter into a kind of a formalized you know, relationship where God is give, meeting our needs and we give him, the, give him the prayer. And then the intimacy with God comes with the holy place. And what sits in the holy place? The ark. The ark. And what sits on top of the ark? The mercy seat. The mercy seat. The mercy seat. That is where we have an intimate relationship with God, at the very mercy seat of God where he gets to give us who he is. The temple was designed so that he shows us the path to him. The forgiveness of Christ, the washing of the word, the feeding on the word and the light that the word gives us in our prayers, and then we move into a close relationship with God at the mercy seat. And the mercy seat has and the Ark of the Covenant has what sitting in it? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Manna. Commandments. Manna. Manna. The Rod that Budded. And the Rod that Budded. So again, in the, in the Ark of the Covenant is sitting food, the Manna, God's Word, the Law, and His authority represented by the Rod that Budded. So each step of the way, you're seeing God in a more and more intimate relationship with you. And now, this is kind of an interesting thing. God keeps showing himself. He shows us in each of the parts. He's going to show us himself in the, the sacrifices. We, if you remember, he showed us with the very covering of the covenant of the, of, the, of the tabernacle. 
Who remembers the four coverings? What's the first one you see from the inside? Huh? The black. No. Nope. The linen. Linen. With what colors? Purple, blue, gold, and scarlet. Very good. All right, what do those colors mean? I know, so redemption. Redemption, but that's not in the that's no, not in the linen. The gold, deity, blue, heaven, scarlet, and uh, purple, royalty. So inside, you see, you see man as he's supposed to be, as he was created. To be part of God's family, to be redeemed and have and be able to see God and and be related to God. What's after what's after that linen linen covering? Is Humanity. huh? Humanity. What it's color? Black. The black. And what sin. does that represent? The sin. <laughs> what covers what covers the black covering? Bronze. Huh? Bronze. No, not judgment. Uh, silver. No. No, no, wait. On the on the colors. Colors. Blue. No. Scarlet. The yellow. Uh, the scarlet. The scarlet yeah. for the blood. And then over that is the covering that is representing Jesus, which protects from the elements. Okay. So as they're inside, as they're inside the the as we're inside the tabernacle worshiping God, because of the blood of Christ covering our sins, and when God looks down, He sees His Son of God. He sees His Son. We have. A relationship with him that is fully intimate because he sees us as perfect. He doesn't see the sin. And he doesn't see the sin because it's covered. So this is what the picture of the temple is. When Paul says we are the temple of God, he's thinking back to this exact building, the tabernacle that has man, sin, blood, and Jesus covering it and says, This is where the intimacy comes. You're fed in the holy place, you get light in the holy place. You're given, your prayers go up in the holy place. And in the holy of holies, you have an intimate relationship with God at the mercy seat. And who knows, who remembers what the, that big word is, the other name for the mercy seat? Propitiation. Propitiation. And what does that mean? The payment made to satisfy the offended person. Jesus made the payment. And we go to the seat of propitiation, which means that the payment is made and we come before God. This is, we're wrapping up, we're wrapping up the tabernacle. We're not going to talk about the tabernacle again until we get to Deuteronomy. Now we'll talk about it. I mean, they'll, they'll be taking it down and putting it up, but there's not going to be this big description of the tabernacle until Deuteronomy. So I want to make sure we fully understand this. The tabernacle is where we meet God, and he is the one that provided the path to meet him. When he was given the description, he says, okay, I want people in the Holy of Holies. How do I get them there? And he started building backwards on how to get us there. So this is the pathway to get to God, is through the, holy of, through, the, through the whole tabernacle. And it's very great to think about this. It is a powerful place. There's a, there's a man on the radio that talks about praying through the tabernacle, and I know that he's saying, forgive, forgive me of my sins, wash me of my guilt, give me light, give me food, you know, help me pray for others and let me have intimacy with, it, with you. Without even knowing what, is, what his book is about, I can guarantee you that that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Starting outside, working his way into intimacy. Because that is what it represents. Showbread, food, the lampstand, the light on how to get through my life, the prayers that I, that I give. All the way working to intimacy with God. 
So we hope that you're getting hold of this, that when you start reading the verse tabernacle, temple, and you see those references in the New Testament, that all of a sudden you're going to think this is not just one word that means this little, little thing. There's a huge picture being attached to this whole idea of the temple or the tabernacle. And it, it is a powerful picture that we want to look at. Now, I encourage you, keep these pictures that I've given you out in the past and keep them, keep them someplace where when you read about the temple, you can go back and look at them. The next thing that happened when, he, when, they, when he's built, put in, huh? They're in my <laughs> the next thing they talk about in verse 9, it says, And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle, and all that is therein, you shall hallow it, and it shall... And all the vessels shall thereof, and you shall, and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering, and its and his vessels, and sanctify the altar, and it shall be an altar most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its foot to sanctify it. And what does the anointing oil represent? Does anybody remember? Yeah, it's the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's saying, take the representation of the Holy Spirit and put him over all the vessels and parts of the tab tabernacle. What happens to us when we get saved? The Holy Spirit is given to us and indwells us. Not part of him, all of him comes in and indwells us and anoints our life. We are given power, we are made holy because the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and we've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is our power to live correctly. He is the one that is going to crucify our flesh and, and try to guide us into proper living by letting him rule in our life. Very important on this because the Holy Spirit was put over the covering. Over the whole of the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit, the anointing oil was placed. We have that same power in our temple, our tabernacle, our flesh, and our flesh that becomes the temple of God when we're saved. And the Holy Spirit comes in and is anointing every part of our life and leads us. He leads us into forgiveness of sin. He leads us into the washing of our being. He leads us through the word of God. I'm hoping you're experiencing the Holy Spirit guide you as you read. That all of a sudden things are becoming more and more illuminated as you let the Holy Spirit lift them up off the page. Because the Holy Spirit will give you clear understanding of the scriptures. What I've just said about walking into the Holy, walking into the Holy of Holies is something I've never heard anybody say, but this guy's mind of praying, praying through, the Holy, you know, through the tabernacle matches what I was just given today. And I think I know exactly what he's writing about. The idea that God will give us interpretation of the scriptures. And I've shared with you, when I was a teenager, there were a lot of times when I'd come to God and go, God, I don't understand this scripture. What the, what the teacher or the pastor said doesn't make sense to me. Will you please tell me what this verse means? And God would give me the answer. Then over the years, I learned how to study deeper and dig into things and found out that the Holy Spirit gave me the answer that my digging deeper came up with. God will give you the right answer if you just listen to him. The Holy Spirit was wanting to speak to us, wants to give us light. And I've shared with you many times, I love talking to new Christians who are reading the Bible for the first time and they're listening to the Holy Spirit and they come in and go, 
wow, you know what I saw this morning when I was reading the Bible and God showed this to me and they give me some, some mind-blowing insight that I look at and say, that fits. If it doesn't contradict with anything to do with Scripture, and yet it is so mind-blowing because I've never thought about it. This happens all the time when you listen to the Holy Spirit. He will give you insights to the Scripture that will be something that others haven't thought of. And this is why I encourage people, share what God shows you in the Scriptures. Share it with people. Let them know what, you're, what He's telling you. You're going to bless them. And don't think, you know, don't think for a moment, if, if I'm the one you want to share, don't think for a moment that you know, I'm going to think it's too silly or too easy because, number one, if it's new to you, it's good anyway. But I have been shocked over the years by some of the insight that God has given new believers. And they come in and say, look. And even if it's not new to me, I'm going to be excited for them because God showed them something new. Because I'm not going to, I am not going to do anything to try to drag somebody's excitement on the word of God down. Because I want them to stay excited. Uh, number 9 of uh, 40. It shall take uh, the anointing oil and, and anoint the tabernacle that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And all that is therein. It shall hallow it. Make holy, make, make sanctified. Holy. I always heard that word, oh, hallow. How would be your name, make holy, make, make special. Yeah, yeah, I never knew. Yeah. So... We hello. So we see that God is saying that He wants us to be holy. We can't be holy in and of ourselves. It, it takes the anointing oil. It means setting it aside. The Holy Spirit comes into it. He sets us aside and He makes us holy. Now He's going to spend the rest of our life making us holy, because we are going to spend our entire life being sanctified, being made holy. And we will be holy in certain areas of our life, and we will be totally deficient in other areas of our life, and we'll be partially, partially holy and partially deficient in other parts of our life as God is working on us. And we will always be in transition in our life. And this is why we should learn to be gentle with those who aren't as far along because they just haven't learned in certain areas yet. I can guarantee you that I've been walking with God for these over 40 years and there's areas in my life that God has still not made me holy in, mostly because I haven't released them to them. I, I haven't let him crucify that area. And every one of us have those areas. And all of us have certain areas where God has given us victory, where we say, God, I thank you for this, and we're fairly victorious in those certain areas. And so we want to be able to be understanding of this. The Holy Spirit is the one that's going to do the work, and he's going to do the work as we let him crucify us. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he went voluntarily. He didn't go kicking and screaming and being drugged to the cross. He went because he knew that that's what it is. When God says he wants to crucify us, he wants us to do it the same way. Voluntarily give up that area of our life and let him crucify it. He's not going to say, well, I'm going to drag you to the cross, kicking and screaming, and crucify that area of your life. Now, he may set up the circumstances that make you want to give it up and hope that you will give it up, but he's not going to take you to be crucified, kicking and screaming. He's going to want it to be just like Jesus, voluntarily saying, God, get this out of my life, kill it. And then the Holy Spirit will come in and live in that area. Does that make sense to everybody? 
Okay, verse... Tw- yeah, I have a question. Sure. Now, when they are giving a free will offering, mm-hmm. as that like our offering, our tithing, that we give at church, I mean, it's... I know it's not a sacrifice. It's a free will. It's something they just give for no reason. Well, the free will offering could be a sacrifice as well as an offering. It is not the tithe because the tithe is commanded. It would not have been any of the, the major feast feast, feast days yeah. because those were commanded. It was, I want to honor God, so I'm going to come in with my bullock or my first, you know, first fruits were commanded, but my, some of my second and third fruits, and I'm going to give them to God just because I want to give them to him. So the free will offering in our day would be the amount above the offering that I give, a okay. uh, tithe that I give. Uh, because God commands the tithe. Yeah. Not that we're going to enforce it and say everybody's got a tithe. That's between them and God. But God says the tithe is mine. The free will gift is what I give him over and above the tithe. The tithe. Well, now, um, did the Levites get that? Or? The Levites got most everything that was tithe. If it wasn't burnt, it went to them. It was for it's for them. It was the same thing that we do when we give our tithes and offerings. They basically go to the support of the church, mm-hmm. and primarily, and especially in small churches, to the pastor because the pastor is the most expensive person. You know, it, you know, the greatest expense in any small church usually. Uh, and in most in the larger churches, it's still a large percentage of the money goes to the staff of the church. You know, between thirty and forty percent of the church. You know, offerings would get paid out to, to pastors and, and other workers. Uh, so yes, it, the free will offering went to the Levites and, and consequently goes through, through the pastors. And the Levites, of course, had to do the upkeep of the, yeah. of the building and, and all of the other stuff that went along with it and the cleaning. And uh, so yes, the, those, that's how it worked out in the Old Testament. That went to the so when the people of God forgot the the temple and didn't bring their tithes and offerings in, what it would use the, the flip side of that is that the Levites would usually leave the temple and go to the cities of refuge which were theirs so that they could do farming and, and make make a living because people weren't supporting them at the temple. So it was it was a very kind of a two way street. The less the people supported them, the more Levites left the temple. And they would only come because they had no land other than their cities of refuge. So they had and a, and a field around you know, a little bit of field around the city of refuge where they could grow some of their own support when they weren't at the temple. So this is this is an important thing for them to be looking at. All right, verse twelve, and you shall bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and wash them with water. And you shall put on Aaron the holy garments and anoint him and sanctify him and that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And you shall bring his sons and clothe them with coats and you shall anoint them as you did their father that they may minister unto me in the priest's office for their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. So... Aaron and his sons were brought before God and the people. And they were anointed. They were, they were given the anointing of the Holy Spirit over them, covered by the Holy Spirit specifically for, the, for their service. And that they were to put on these special clothes, clothes that they had. And they had the linen, the linen and the ephods and their, 
and the, his sons had bonnets and he had a miter on his head and he and once a year he put on the whole garment with the breastplate and the and the, and all of that other materials that he carried with him and it says they are to be anointed they are anointed unto service of the people they are they are made special just like we as Christians are made anointed and washed for the purpose of serving God in the world. We go out and we give the gospel. We make disciples. We're, we're to go out and to serve and show that God loves people. Now, the Jews, they, they did what so many Christians do. They kind of isolated themselves and said, well, you know, we're not special people. We're not going to go talk to anybody else. And that is not what God's intention was for them. His intention was for them to be the priest of the world and bring them to God. Some of them are very arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> and we see sometimes that there's Christians that just, they don't want to have anything to do with the world. It's, you know, God, it's you, me, and nobody else. And it's pretty much the way the Jews thought was, you know, during this time. God, it's just, it's just us children of Abraham and you. We don't want anybody else in this, in, this, in this mix. The sad thing is we do the same thing oftentimes as Christians where we don't share the gospel. We don't invite people to come and know God. And it's critical for us to take the anointing that we're giving and serve God to people. And that's simple. Tell them, tell them what God has done for us. I'm going to tell you, when you give your testimony, nobody can argue with you about your testimony. If you're trying to get into creationism and, and all these other things that are out there and all these deep theological discussions with the lost world, they can argue with you. But when you tell them, this is who I was, I got saved by Jesus, and this is who he's made me, how can they argue that? Because that is you. It is your testimony. When I share that I got saved and God took my temper away from me, who, who's out there that's going to be able to say, no, he didn't? I was there. He did it. You know, he gave me a love for the word of God. I was there. I found that he gave it to me. I saw the things that he's done in my life, the times he's blessed me, I've seen. Those are what we share with people. We share, God has done great things for me. God is good, and he's good all the time. He wants to give us good things. Now, sometimes we don't recognize what he wants to give us as good. And we're going, God, how could that be good? And he's saying, just wait and you'll see. Just wait and you'll see how this was for your good, for good. It'll allow you to witness to people. It'll allow you to, to, to work with people. I was talking, you know, I talked with Steve yesterday who does, you know, celebrate recovery. And it's so funny because he says the same things. I, he says the same thing to the people that I would say to them. But because he's been there, they accept it from him where they wouldn't accept it from me. And then that's, praise God, whatever, it doesn't bother me. You know, but it is funny when he says, you know, you've got to face it, recognize that it's sin, and, the, and ask God to take it away, which is exactly what I would tell them about it. But we, we as people tend to want to think, you know, if somebody hasn't been there, they can't, they never could understand what I'm going through because they've never been there. As I've been told that a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Because I you do or never have, then you don't know. Yeah. And I don't. And in one sense, they're right, but it's still sin. Every one of us has had to deal with sin. Mm -hmm. 
No matter how big or small the sins we've had to deal with, we've had to deal with sin. And every sin is dealt with the same exact way. I recognize that it is a sin. I recognize that it has a hold on me. I recognize that it takes God to crucify it in my life and take it away from me, and it takes God for me to be victorious over it. It doesn't matter what sin it is. It doesn't matter whether it's drugs or alcohol or pornography or illicit sex or somebody that lies a lot or has bad thoughts or who's lazy, who is a gossip. Whatever the sin might be, it's the same process to get rid of that sin. And that's why we can take what God gives us and apply it everywhere because we know what it's about. We know that it is sin. We know that it takes God to get rid of that sin because he is the great power behind everything. He is the one that wants to rescue us. He is the one that wants to set us on the path for the direct direction. And I've said, no matter how big we think God is, he's bigger than whatever we think he is. Mm -hmm. However big or small I think God is, he's bigger. And And I have a pretty big God. And he's still bigger than anything I can think of. He's stronger than anything I can think of. He's more powerful than anything I can think of. He's richer than anything I can think of. He owns everything, including all the stuff we think we own. He owns. He's just letting us use it. And he is up there saying, I want to be your God. I want to be your father. I want to be your friend. And with Jesus, he's saying, I am, the, I am the bridegroom. You are the bride. I want to have an intimate relationship with you because that is what he's wanting. We were created for his enjoyment as we accept him. Very powerful, very strong thought on this. Any comments before we move to the third section? All right, verse 17, verse 16. Thus did Moses according to all that the Lord commanded, so did he. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. And Moses reared up the tabernacle and fastened the sockets and set up the boards thereof and put the bars thereof and reared up the pillars. And he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent above it as the Lord commanded Moses. And he took and put up the testimony into the ark and set the staves in the ark and put the mercy seat above the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set, it up, set up the veil of covering and covered the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the ta- table in the tent of the congregation on the pon- upon the side of the tabernacle northward without the veil. And he set the bread in order upon, and upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he put the candlestick in the tent of the co- congregation over against the table on the side of the tabernacle southward. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation before the veil. And he burnt sweet incense upon it as the Lord commanded Moses. And he set up the hanging at the the door of the tabernacle. And he put the altar of the burnt offering by the door of the tabernacle. And he set the, the tent of the congregation and offered upon it the burnt offering and the meat offering as the Lord commanded And he set the laver before the tent of the congregation and the altar and put water there to wash wherewith. And Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet and they went, when they went into the tent of the congregation and when they came near into the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded. 
He reared up the court around about the tabernacle and the altar and set the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Now I have a feeling that Moses didn't do every bit of this all by himself. But he was the one who was intricately involved in showing the Levites exactly how it was to be put together. How did he know how it was supposed to be put together? God told him up on the Mount Sinai where he was up there for, well, between the two times, 80 days. He was up there on the mountain with God and God showed him every little thing that was to be done in the setting up of this tabernacle. Well, if he didn't write notes, he had a mind. I'm sure he either wrote, <laughs> wrote notes or had a very strong mind, yes. But the example here is that Moses is the servant showing and teaching people how to do service to God. This is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to be servants, showing people how to serve God, how to come to God. That's our job. That's our job as Christians, to show people how to come to God. And I've talked with you, how many, you know, I don't know how many times, especially here in this town, it's been more than any place else, but how many times people have told me, well, I don't need church, I can worship God on the mountain, on the lake, uh, out hunting, you know, or outside, sitting outside my door. And you know, we've talked about this so many times. They are absolutely right. You can worship God on the mountaintop, on the, on the lake, outside your, outside your house. The first question that I like to ask them is, are you? No. Are you? And, and you know, if they were to be honest, their answer is probably, no, I'm not worshiping God. I'm just using this as an excuse. But even if they are worshiping God in those places, God says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together and so much more as you see the day approaching. Without fellowship with other Christians, you will stop fellowshipping with God. Even if they start worshiping God in these places and they're having a good time with God in those places, eventually they're going to burn out if they're not getting fellowship with other Christians. Well, how are they going to fellowship with anybody if they're by themselves? They can't. I mean, they, well, they can fellowship they with God, God, maybe. I mean, when I'm driving and I'm praying, mm -hmm. but that's to me... For a short time, you, will, you can fellowship with God by yourself. But I have seen over 44 years, I'm, I'm not going to say 100% because I'm not absolutely sure, but at least 99% of the time, if somebody stops coming to church, they will stop serving God. They will stop reading the Bible. They will stop studying the Bible. They will stop praying. Some may take a very short time to get there. Some may take a longer time to get there. You know, and I really think it's probably 100%. Because I can't think of any exception out there where somebody who's left a fellowship and tried to worship God on, on their own by themselves has continually stayed faithful to God. It's just a guarantee. It's just like they use the, the idea of a burning fire. As long as the wood, the, the coal, whatever stays in the middle of that fire, it stays red hot. Take some tongs and pull the red hot coal out of the middle of the fire, set it on the stone next to it, the fire, and it won't be long that it's no longer red hot. It'll still be warm for a while, 
But even beyond that, after a while, it'll stop being warm and you can touch it and do whatever you want with it. The fire will still be roaring if it's a big enough fire, but that ember that you took from the center of it will, will cool off because it's not attached to the source of the heat. We are the same way, and we as God's servants need to be able to say, come, come, serve God. Be willing to serve God. And this is the importance of the church, that people come together and they get to burn together for a while, and then when they go out, they stay warm until they come back together and start burning again because of the, the assembling of themselves. Because God says there's that love that's joined together. There's the encouragement. When you're down, what you need is somebody that's there to say, God still loves you. He still has a plan for you. And every one of us, God has a plan for. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is definitely a plan for you. I'm going to go further. I believe that God has a plan even for the lost. Mm -hmm. They may not be wanting to operate in that plan. They may be trying to avoid that plan, but he has a plan for them. And most of them are playing their part really well, not knowing that they're doing it. Because God is using them to be able to challenge his people. God has a plan. He created man to have a plan. We, our job is to find his plan and accomplish this. And this is why I talk so often. What is it that God is calling you to do? What is it? We need to find that. We need to find out what it is. Sometimes it may be just the loving phone calls to the, to the people we make. It could be the prayers that we make for somebody. It doesn't have to be a big thing. How many times have you thought of somebody and you made that phone call and, they, and you, you started talking with them and, and just you were able to cheer them up just because they were way down and you were able to just to give them the love of God and resuscitate them at that period of time? That's an important ministry. The idea of maybe writing a card, if God puts you on somebody's heart on, you know, on your heart and you just write a quick card. I can't tell you how many of the cards I get of people get their cards and they go, it was just what I needed when it came in. And I don't know what I'm going to write when I write these cards. I just talk to God and let's start writing on these cards. And I write something different every time I write a card. Because I want people just to feel God's love and be encouraged. And making phone calls. Oftentimes I'll be doing something and all of a sudden somebody's name will pop up into my mind and they say, i got to call this person. And just talk to them. Just talk to them. Not, not even to preach to them or, to, or anything. It's just to say God loves you in a, in a very soft way. I was thinking about you. God put you on, your, on, on my heart. His servants have ways of serving. And what, what other ways? I mean, there's so many ways to serve. It's not, not even going to be funny when we get to heaven and God says, you did this, you said this, you, 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 you prayed for this person. We're, we've got the internet. We're putting all these service messages on the internet. I looked on this. We've got as many as 10 to 15 people listening to the services. Now, I don't know who they are. I don't know if they're listening the first five minutes and, and, and kicking off. I don't know if they're listening to the whole thing. But there are people out there that we are touching their lives that we may never know until we get to heaven. But the most important thing Everybody who gives to this church and keeps this church going has a part in these messages going out because 
you all are the ones that are paying the bills to get the website paid for so that God using me to teach you gets to go out to other people. And we'll get to heaven and God will say, and we'll meet these people that, wow, I was able to do this or I got saved or, or I got strengthened because of this message on that day that I heard on your website. And we'll all be blessed and get rewards for that. And those are the great ones because I'll never know who's, who most of these people are listening probably. Not unless they give us an email saying, hey, you know, this is what happened to me. We'll probably never know what's going on out there. But it's a blessing that we as this little tiny church in Chloride, Arizona can do with a worldwide presence. Because we don't know if the people listening to us are here in Arizona. We don't even know if they're in the United States. We don't know where they're at listening to these messages. They could be anywhere. And this is what God's got for us. One of the many ways that our church is reaching out to the world. And who knows what blessing we'll, we'll, we'll see from that. Maybe we won't receive anything. I don't know, but we're doing a little bit. And God's going to touch people. And we just, that is our service. Praying. I want to tell you, praying is probably the greatest service that we can do and people make it the, the lightest service that they do. They don't think all I, you know, many times I've heard people say, well, all I ever do is pray. You're activating the, the heavenlies toward an answer and that's all you're doing? <laughs> you know, you're sounding an alarm, you're, you're asking God to move and that's all you're doing? You're getting the God of the universe to move and you want to say, oh, that's nothing? Prayer is a big step. Now, I hear people say, well, I'm a prayer warrior, and I don't think they are because I don't, you know, when you ask them to pray, you don't see answers. But I also know there are people out there, there are prayer warriors that when they pray, God moves. There are people who are soul winners. Now, we're all told to, to witness to everybody. And I was listening to one of the pastors on the radio, and I kind of felt just like him. You pour your heart out. You want to see somebody saved, and you give a gospel message, and nobody responds. I know people that all they've got to do is say five words and people are getting saved all over the place. That is probably the most depressing thing you see when you really are just pouring your heart out. to be. But God is, does not make us accountable for who responds. He just says, give, his, give the testimony. Give, his, give the gospel. Share the gospel with people. And we've given the gospel so many times. It's so simple. You are a sinner. You deserve punishment. Jesus died for your sins, and it's a free gift. Ask him to come into your heart. Such a simple message. Now, we all know that there's much more behind that, but it is a simple message. Anybody can give the gospel in 30 seconds to a minute with no problem. And then you give your testimony of what God has done in your life to, you know, on top of that. And then you just ask him, do you want to know God? Do you want to ask him into your heart? Do you want to be able to go to heaven? There is a heaven that is very real and a perfect place. And there is a very real hell, which is a place of punishment. And we've got to grab hold of the idea that there is a hell and people that don't get saved are going there. And very important for us to understand that. Very important. I am, I am not one who's going to get mad at people because of what they do, because if they're not following God, they're going to hell. They can be as mean as they want to me because I don't care. I want to see them go to heaven. If they'll go to heaven and be mean to me, then that's fine. I don't care as long as they're going to heaven. 
Now, it's hard to do those two together. It's hard to be mean to somebody if you're actually following God. But if that's what it takes to get them to go to heaven, then I don't care. Paul said to God, God, if my, if my going to hell would bring the Israelites to heaven, then send me to hell and take them to heaven. That's love. That is a great love. Now, Paul knew that it couldn't happen, but that was his love for his people to say, God, I, I would be willing to go to hell so that all, all the Jews would, would be in your presence. The last section here, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in their journeys. And if the cloud was not taken up, that their journey, they journeyed not till that day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day and the fire by night in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Once our tabernacle is set up, we're operating, we're, we've been made holy through the Holy Spirit's anointing and we are serving God. We get the anointing, fire, and glory of God upon our life. I hope you felt that. I hope you have felt that in various times in your life. The very full presence of God upon you. I can't describe it when it happens. It doesn't happen all the time for me. But when it does, it is a powerful place. The glory of God. So strong on the tabernacle that nobody could go to the tabernacle when his glory was there because of the presence of God. I hope you felt his presence at times. So strong that when, when people are in a sinful state and they come into the presence of God, they pull back from it because it is so holy, so righteous, so loving that your sin is so strong against it that you want to pull back. When you've been confessed up to date and, you've, and, you're, and you're walking with God and you just revel in being in his glory because his glory brings out everything. His glory comes out of us when we let it, our flesh be crucified and his love come out. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who's following God and their love is so strong that you are just drawn to God because of it? I hope so. Hopefully you've been there at some time, at some point in your life. Probably not all the time, but at some point, so much of God is excluding out of you that people are drawn, not to you, but to the God in you. The love that you show, the, the, the grace that you show people, the mercy that you show people, that they're drawn to it. And they're going, I want what you have. I don't know what you have. I don't understand this, but I want what you have. The final stage of setting up for the tabernacle after it had been anointed and, and by the Holy Spirit, after the service of Moses showing everybody, was that it was covered with God's glory. When Moses talked to God mouth to mouth, was he still in the cloud? Probably. Because I don't think he ever saw his face. He never did see his face because he said, you can't, the man cannot see my face unless he die. And it always talks about his backside. Right. When God, when Moses was able to talk to God face to face, it says it was just in person. Yeah. Uh, and 
God very clearly said that Moses had a dealing with, with him that nobody else has had. I think he was one of the, great, the greatest that he, he, he is one of the greatest. I mean, Adam and Eve actually walked with God and they actually saw, I would believe that they saw Jesus. Uh, many, of the, many of the prophets heard God speak, but Moses is the only other person outside of Adam and Eve that the statement was that he talked with God. And we, and we see the interaction with him, you know, where, where, he's, where, they're, where they're having, remember we talked about that almost game, the, well, God, uh, Moses, these people that you laid out, no God, they're your people. There was a banter between them that, went, that took it beyond, you know, what most people have with God. Because Moses and God seem to have this, you know, kind of a friendly banter of, you know, well, Moses, they're your people, no God, they're your people. I don't want to have anything to do with them. You know, or you did that. You did this, and yeah. Yep. So. Uh, one other problem you want. Once, well, this is what we said, Once you learn to separate a person from their sin, you will be a better person. Mm -hmm. More understanding. It took me a long time to do that. And that's where we learn to give people mercy, is when we can separate them from their sin. And this is why when, when Christians talk about loving the sinner and hating the sin, the world doesn't understand it because they cannot separate it. Number one, because they don't see it as sin. They see it as who the person is. That's why when they talk about homosexuals, they're saying they are homosexual. They are gay. They are an alcoholic. They are this. They are this. They cannot separate the action from who the person is. We as Christians know that they are a sinful, fallen person acting out in sin and that the Satan has hold of them. On the flip side of it is, even when we are righteous and holy, it is still not me who's holy and righteous. It's God working through me and it's still an action that has to be separated from the person. And this is where we sometimes will get in trouble as a, as a, in Christianity and the church. We see somebody who's doing a lot of good things and, and preaching or teaching, and we raise them up on this platform saying, look how good this person is. They're a sinner saved by grace who's going to fall. And we put them up on a pedestal and then watch them fall and get terribly miserable because we forgot to separate the person from the action. And both sides, both good and bad, we need to separate the person from the action. The person is a soul that needs God to save them or to keep leading them on the good side. And their actions are what they do, either good or bad, and they will fall. If they, even if it's on the good side, they will fall. And that's why we have to be careful not to raise up somebody and say, this is the, look how good this person is. Because if we're looking at them and how good they are, we're going to be very disappointed when they fall. And we don't ever want to be lifted up that high because people then will fall when we fall. And you've said it many times, you don't like how some of the people look at you at this town as somebody special and, and everything. But the God in you is special and I understand why they do it. And I agree with you, this shouldn't happen, but it does. And when we are witnessing to people, people are gonna look at our life and says, does the life that you're talking to me about match what you're talking to me about? If somebody is living in, in very open sin that everybody sees and then they're witnessing to somebody and trying to lead them to God, 
They're either going to look at him and say, I don't want a God you have. And that's why it's important. We need to live godly. And the only way we can live godly is to let God crucify our flesh and let him live through us. And then we can share with people and they go, I think I want what you have. I see the difference in your life. All right. We made it through the end of Exodus. I expect people that don't know the Lord to act like they do, but I'm working on it. There are a lot of Christians that get that way. Because they're not saved. They're not saved, but I forget. That's all they know. They're acting just like the world acts. And I and I believe me, I've had to share that with so many people. How can they do that? Well, because they're probably not saved. They're acting just the way an unsaved person does. They are going to disobey God. And we've got to remember that. And the same same statement though is when a Christian does something that is not godly, it's the same answer. They are a sinful, fleshly being. They're living according to the flesh. So the key to us is to not have expectations for anybody to live according to God. When they do, we say, praise God, thank you, they're living for God, and and be happy. Now, some live for God more than they don't live for God. But you know, if you really believe that people are basically sinful, and they are, that's what the scripture tells us, that they're basically sinful, and they sin, it should not be a surprise. The problem is we get our mindset that this person should be perfect, whether they're lost or saved. We get this idea that they're supposed to act good. And then we get all irritated when they don't act good. And it was all because our expectation was wrong. Because I believe that sinners are going to sin, when I meet Christians who are living for God and and they're being good, praise God, somebody's walking with God. And it's something to praise for. And then when I watch them do something wrong, well, I'm going to pray for them because they need help. Because that's what I want people to do for me, because I'm not going to be perfect. I'm not even anywhere close to being perfect. And I'm going to do things wrong, and, I'm not, and I want to live for God, and I'm still going to do things wrong. And I want people to be able to say, pray for him, he needs help. Not, not how could he have done that? How could he have done that? How could he have you know, disappointed me so much by, by being mean that day to, to us? Well, because I'm a sinner saved by grace just like everybody else. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your care. We ask that you go with us this day. Help us to, to allow you to crucify our flesh. Help us to live in a godly manner. Help us to be able to give the gospel to people so that people will learn that, we, that they are sinners, that they, they, they deserve punishment, and that you pay for that punishment and accept that gift. We just thank you and all of that. And we ask you to go with us this week. Give us opportunities to share you. In Jesus' name, amen.